Hi, I'm Trini. And I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of the book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and appreciate the identity of each nation. And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. We are back with another episode. It is 10pm now. <laughs> yes, the bonnet is on. What can I say? Yours is on. I'm still I'm still holding on, but I will once once we've recorded and things. Once it's 10 but... o'clock, the bonnet comes mm-hmm. out. <laughs> a new look. Talking. Look at me about to do a segue. Maybe I should say that after I've done the segue. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. So, um... My African Pride is actually hair-related this Ooh. week. So it is going to Ugandan entrepreneur Juliette Tomusumi. Juliette founded the hair company Shuvu Organic, so organic hair. And what they do is use banana fibres to create wigs and hair extensions. So this is a much more sustainable alternative to synthetic hair, which is made from plastic and is non-biodegradable. So with cop. 27 in is that Hapen still Adul- is that still on th- th- oh. is that still on we're not we're not quite sure but there's a heavy focus on the environment and the situation and its impact at the moment so yeah it's just nice to see i think it's these types of companies come about because i've seen a lot of companies like hair companies come through and you know i'm been using synthetic hair but you don't actually think about you know where does it end up afterwards that mm. sort of thing so it's great to see more of these types of companies really emerging and really looking at areas that we potentially take for granted um in this way so yeah banana fibers who would have thought it you no i love innovation i love innovation from the continent so shout out juliet this is the sort of science i should be learning about in school i think i would have had so much more interest in it if they were like wow you can use banana fibers to create wigs and hair extensions versus i can't even remember (laughs) I didn't did I was not doing well in science in school so it was not my subject but yeah I would be like well into it okay cool let me get this let me yeah I've never seen this before so yeah shout out Shavuot Organique so this week we are discussing Lusophone Africa and that is Portuguese speaking Africa through the lens of the revolutionist and pan-Africanist Amica Cabral Cabral played a critical role in bringing about the end of colonial rule in Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde and influenced similar movements in the rest of Lusophone Africa. Lusophone Africa was comprised of Angola, Cabo Verde, Equatorial Guinea, Mozambique, Sao Tome and Principe and Guinea-Bissau. All places that I actually want to visit to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, Cabo Verde was on our list but we... What um, had happened? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Did not make that happen. Actually, any listener who's been to Cabo Verde, please send us recommendations on places to stay. Because, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't hoteling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. It was not hoteling. So please send it across because we, we need to make this trip happen. Cabral was born in Guinea-Bissau on September 12th, 1924 to Cabo Verdean parents. Guinea-Bissau can be found in West Africa and sits between Senegal and the Gambia to the north and Guinea to the south. The country was under Portuguese rule 
and was known as Portuguese Guinea during this time. In 1945, age 21, Cabral successfully gained a scholarship to study agronomy, a branch of agriculture at the Higher Institute of Agronomy of the Technical University of Lisbon. During his five years of study in Portugal, he met his first wife, Maria Rodriguez, his classmate. Cabral was admired for his intellect and was highly educated. However, this was against a backdrop of racial discrimination by the Portuguese. Like many of its colonizer cousins, the Portuguese justified their so-called discovery and takeover of African nations by using the rhetoric the Africans needed civilizing. In Cabral's words, he saw all Portuguese education disparages the African, his culture and civilization. African languages are forbidden in schools. The white man is always presented as a superior being and the African as an inferior. The colonial conquistadores are shown as saints and heroes. As soon as African children enter elementary school, they develop an inferiority complex. This really reminds me of what Muhammad Ali said about how when he was growing up, all the quote good things were white and all the quote bad things appeared to be black to him. But again, Mm. it's an age old practice straight out of the colonizer handbook. Yeah, and this is like seen in, gosh, the numerous different countries that we covered and how the approach from a European perspective was very much, you know, to justify what was going on was we're going into Africa to civilize them they're inferior and well it was used to justify a lot of the practices and approaches mm-hmm. that they took there but yeah it's just he was ridiculous and in the book that I was reading on him they talk about an encounter where so his wife his first wife was Portuguese mm-hmm. and when he first met her family and just the racism that he experienced during that time I know we'll go into his story a bit more, but it's really interesting how we don't really know much about Lucifer in Africa and just how segregated and racist it was at the time. No, definitely. Nevertheless, Cabral pressed to make a difference for Lucifer in Africa. He met African students from other Lucifer African nations. They came together to establish the Centre for African Studies in Lisbon. This student movement was focused on gaining independence for their countries. But this didn't go down too well with the Portuguese government, who ensured that law enforcement harassed the group in an attempt to silence them. Which again, another I mean, straight, straight out of the book. Mm -hmm. Cabral returned to Guinea-Bissau in 1952 and worked for the Agricultural and Forestry Service in Guinea-Bissau. The nature of his role allowed him to travel across the country and better understand what was going on and identify how best to gain independence. Before returning to Guinea-Bissau, anti-colonial activities in the country were slowly growing, but Cabral drove this push to topple colonialism and imperialism. For him, a crucial part of the independence process involved the re-Africanisation of the spirit, which focused on Africans reconnecting with their culture and heritage. Why did he focus on re-Africanisation? The Portuguese had essentially established a divide and conquer strategy across their African colonies. The majority of black Africans were considered and treated like second class citizens and they were labelled uncivilised. This group lived in squatter conditions and had no civil rights essentially. Yeah, if you were black and lived within one of these countries, 
there was actually a 9 p.m. curfew in place. Um, so you couldn't go out in the evenings, essentially. Which, just for what? Literally just because somebody is black. It's baffling. Yeah, makes no sense. What they also did was they also had a small minority of black Africans who held the status of assimilados, meaning assimilated. So these were Africans that had embraced Portuguese culture and language. And there were very few people with that status. So in Mozambique, out of a population of 5.7 million Africans, just over 4,000 of them were considered assimilated. And in Guinea-Bissau, it was around 6,000. And those who had assimilated received much better treatment, but still considered different and separate from the Portuguese. And in fact, they even had to carry identity cards which recognised them as being assimilated. And in Cabral's words, the identity card was the only valid proof of being a human being. And also, in order to become assimilated, you had to jump through way more hoops than the average Portuguese person. Yeah, I can A little imagine. bit like, you know, how the British citizenship test is just a bit... I don't even know what the questions are anymore. Because <laughs> they are... <laughs> Stuff that the, the average Brit doesn't actually know the answer to. Um, so it's yeah. pretty much very similar to that in terms of the hoops. And it's just so powerful how he described that, like, the identity card was the only valid proof of being a human mm. being. Like, how... Your human rights it's... are achieved after mm. you've jumped through all these hoops and then you can carry away. But mm. then it's the fact that you have to then show the card and, like... Show the card. Just have the assumption that you can just go around your business. And for me, it's a little bit, I guess it goes back to the whole idea of saying that, you know, being Portuguese is very much being civilised because, and so how were there some Africans who were just, okay, you're civilised versus other people, they're still the same people. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But I guess it's that element of like, yes, because I understand the culture and I'm able to align with it and the language, then that means I am now civilised. Like it's yeah. just... And I guess it goes back to reaffirming their need for them being there, right? Well, I'm assuming Yeah, it's anyway. like in order to become civilised in their eyes, you had to ditch the Africanness. You had to ditch the blackness. Yeah. And you had to completely conform to the Portuguese culture. Mm. You know, during COVID, well, uh, uh, we're look. still going through. Who, who even knows? <laughs> who, who even knows? I was watching a video with Trevor Noah this, um, this afternoon and he was saying how there are like six different strains fighting and i'm like i didn't even know there could be more than the two i thought there was like omicron and whatever stopped. <laughs> it just just stopped it stopped we're all trying to figure out how to heat our yeah. homes um but i'm just wondering whether they did as we said about mozambique where they like right we've managed to assimilate four thousand out of 5.7 million obviously that wouldn't be in the news but do you yeah. see what i mean like as a way to show those back home it would just be really interesting to see what the communication was like mm. back in Portugal mm. around the numbers of people who are being assimilated, the importance of it and all that rhetoric. Because obviously they were also spending a lot amount of money and having a lot of manpower to be able to maintain and control these colonies. Yeah, maybe they had to justify their civilizing mission. But yeah. maybe they didn't just because yeah, true as well, yeah. the owner of these colonies, they just had so much revenue that people in Portugal had no idea about what was going on and said, well, you know, all of a sudden there's money. <laughs> yeah. What the reality was, yeah. Essentially, because of this, Cabral believed this created a hierarchy whereby those who were assimilated saw themselves as culturally superior to the people to which it belongs and whose cultural values it ignores or despises. And he believed this community would need to 
commit suicide as a class. And that's not literal. Mm. What he means here is that they should essentially reject this identity and reconnect with the broader African majority they belong to. We see this idea of, you know, reconnecting to one's Africanness by a lot of pan-Africanist leader and really the role in which like culture and heritage coming to the fore, especially once a country gains independence and that's part of that independence process. He echoes a really similar message no, as well. Definitely. It's just interesting because it's like the opposite of grifters because you know those people that are like, oh, I'm, I'm black and right wing. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Upon his return to Guinea-Bissau, Cabral was gaining attention through his calls for independence, making him a target for the Portuguese governor of Guinea-Bissau. In 1955, the governor basically pushed him out of the country, and so he sought refuge in Angola. During his time in Angola, he joined the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, the MPLA, an organisation that fought the Portuguese for Angola's independence. A year later, in 1956, Cabral co-founded and led the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, PAIGC, along his half-brother Louis Cabral, Julio de Almeira, Fernando Fortes and Elise Turpin. The organisation advocated for the independence of the two nations. PAIGC's initial approach was to influence change through non-violent actions like strikes, which failed to achieve the desired goal. However, his approach changed following the Pijaguiti massacre of 1959. On August 3, 1959, dock workers at Pijaguiti and Bissau went on strike and campaigned for better pay and working conditions. The Portuguese responded by firing at the demonstrators, killing at least 50 dock strikers. The massacre drove Cabral to change his strategy and he and the PAIGC went on the attack, striking at Portuguese forces. The Portuguese thought that firing at the dock strikers would mean that it would kind of repress the independence movement. Yeah. But we see that it actually went from strength to strength following this. And he was also open to changing strategies. Yes. You know, they were striking. Try- and also you can see that they're looking for ways which would normally be like you know in order to obtain change and we're seeing a lot of strikes at the moment is to to strike to get the desired goal and hopefully that opens up the room for negotiation or whatever but actually the response if you look at what they were doing and what they were demanding versus the response from a portuguese perspective that is you know that is not a like for like do you know what i mean (laughs) that is like apples and oranges couldn't be any further Mm -hmm. in terms of response and really traditionally we would think it's a strike people would negotiate but oh no we're out here just shooting at people yeah it just shows the lack of respect mm-hmm. really, that the portuguese had towards uh, black people that lived in lucifer countries and in a sense it's i don't want to say understandable but you sort of see why they move towards you know like <laughs> physical violence and establishing their own oh yeah they had to armed kind of community because that was the response where they're trying to actually do something in a in a non-violent manner mm-hmm. and the response is violent exactly. so i guess you have to they had no use... other option but yeah. to yeah i don't want to say step up but you know to also match how the response that they were getting as well right so it's the language of the unheard so it just it had to be done 
Against this backdrop, you also had Pan-African leaders like Kwame Nkrumah also fighting for independence in Ghana. Nkrumah had invited Cabral to the All-African People's Conference he'd organised in Accra in 1958. The conference was described as a gathering of African freedom fighters to plan the final assault upon imperialism and colonialism. Cabral referred to Nkrumah as the head of state in Africa I admire the most. And upon Nkrumah's death in 1972, he described him as a personal friend who supported the PAIGC against the most retrograde of all colonialisms. I just love this fact that they were actually coming together. And I don't know, we must have done it in an episode, but there's, there's been seasons. But of Pan-Africanists really coming together in this way and connecting. Because sometimes, obviously, you know, when we're doing this episode, it's very much an individual nation. But it was nice to kind of have a look at how, with what Lucifer African nations were dealing with at the time, and also Ghana and how they were able to kind of support each other through this whole process was really nice to see. You know, as we've said before in previous conversations, when we hear about African history, there's a bias towards only hearing about uh, English-speaking African countries with, with a sprinkling of, the, of, of yeah. the DLC, really. But in this case, we see that, no, you know, Lucifer in Africa had a significant part to play, um, as did Amaco Cabral, of course, but you know, that part of the continent had such a vital role to play within Pan-African relations. So it's a shame that we don't really hear as mm-hmm. much about it. Yeah. It'd definitely be nice to look at me thinking of episode ideas whilst we're actually <laughs> yeah. recording an episode. <laughs> but I do think to kind of have a look at more how these different countries were connected and in terms of, you know, be it the fight for independence or just supporting one another. Because who knew this? I was not aware of that this relationship between yeah. the two of yeah. them actually existed. During the 1960s, the PAIGC began making solid grounds and controlled more than two-thirds of Guinea-Bissau. Although the 1960s saw numerous nations gain independence, the Portuguese maintained a stronghold on their colonies. They did the classic renaming of their African territories from colonies to overseas provinces. That is classic French. France has done this so with a lot of African nations. like They've done this so many times and you're just like... Just because you rename something, it is still the same thing. Like, nothing has changed. They just don't want to let go. And then, of course, there's, you know, the whole neocolonialism. But that's another episode for another time. Mm -hmm. They introduced the International and State Defence Police, who kept a close watch of Cabral and used various tactics to silence dissenting voices, including imprisonment, torture and assassination. However. Cabral continued to push forward and bring to light the atrocities committed by the Portuguese. In 1970, he and other members representing freeing Lucifone Africa met Pope Paul VI. Two years later, he was in front of the UN, highlighting the abuses committed under Portuguese colonialism, all in a bid to free Lucifone Africa. This guy was honestly, I don't want to say fearless, but really with everything, it is fearless actually, but yeah, with everything going on, all of these, you know, you've got the police out here, you've got potential for imprisonment, torture, assassination. And this was going on in other African nations, but to still be up front and centre and really striving for independence is amazing to see at the time. And even now, to be honest. Especially when you've got the whole backdrop of dissenting voices and those who really waved the flag for true Mm -hmm. independence and true freedom. Um, ended up dead, to put it quite bluntly, if I'm honest. 
Um, so it yeah. really took real courage uh, to be able to do this and, and stand up against imperialism. When you see stories like this and you're like, wow, what am I actually? <laughs> I'm just here on this island. I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm just out here like, hey, we're educating ourselves. And that is the, that is. Yeah, that is, that's what we're part. doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Sadly, like many revolutionary leaders of the time, Cabral's story ends without him seeing Lucifer and Africa gain independence. On January 20th, 1973, Cabral was assassinated by Innocencio Carni, a former PAIGC Navy commander. It is believed the Portuguese were behind this assassination. Guinea-Bissau went on to gain independence eight months later, on September 24th, 1973 and Cabo Verde gained its independence on July 5, 1975. The PAIGC's ongoing military campaign and the challenging political situation back in Portugal led to both nations' freedom. On April 25, 1974, the Carnation Revolution took place, and the revolution began as a military coup in Portugal, ending the authoritarian Estado Novo regime. Following this, Portugal withdrew from Africa and freed its colonies. Following Cabral's assassination, his half-brother, Louis Cabral, became Guinea-Bissau's first post-independence president. Amaka Cabral is a critical voice in Africa's independence story. His legacy and commitment to establishing a united Africa that could exist in peace and progress economically, socially and culturally remains relevant today. Ooh, what a story. I honestly think this man deserves way more recognition than he currently gets. And it's it's just such a shame. Eight months. Eight months. And this is the thing that is so frustrating because with these leaders, there's always that question of like, what Mm. if, what would have happened if I was able to see it through? But as usual, we've just seen a lot of these leaders get assassinated and then it's just... There's so much potential that has been lost just from all mm-hmm. these leaders alone and we're just always playing this thought pattern of what if yeah but he left you know he supported Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde in their kind of pursuit for independence and he played such a critical role in it that that's definitely not lost and definitely recognized and mm-hmm. I think it was the BBC they recognized him as like oh what was it? One of the key... Yeah, so there was a poll, Greatest Leader of All Time, conducted by BBC World Histories magazine, and Amaka Cabral actually came second. Um, yeah. Do you know where Winston Churchill was? <laughs> Maybe the first. <laughs> he wasn't first. I feel like he, he wasn't missed... first, so that's all I'm going to say. He wasn't? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Normally he's yes. first. I don't know why just most things, it's like, oh... That's amazing though. Like I would not, maybe again, as part of us learning, I had no idea about Amaka Cabral and until actually we wrote the book, but now kind of doing it as an episode. But yeah, until that and just Lucifer in Africa, we sort of forget. I think it tends to kind of focus, mm. you know, on Francophone and that side of things. But yeah, they were, they were out here just because they only had a couple no, of countries. No, I'm sorry. Those <laughs> Portuguese colonizers were on it from early. So from when really? Lagos yeah. is literally named after a place in Portugal. <laughs> and also like a lot of the, um, what we discussed around 
assimilados. That was recreate. That wasn't just in Guinea-Bissau. That was recreated across their various African colonies. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. They had like a consistent pattern um, throughout. They didn't try anything different anywhere else. It was very much, yeah, maintaining that. So, yeah, that was... I'm a Coco Bra. I loved it. And um, yeah, thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter at It's a Continent and on Instagram at It's a Continent Pod and also our website, It's a Continent.com and also our book. <laughs> <laughs> There's too many and now. So many and. ever growing. But yeah, mm-hmm. we do cover Amaka Cabral in um, our book, It's a Continent, in another context. Um, so yeah do check it out if you haven't already see you in two weeks time bye bye